0: Welcome to Uncomfortable is OK, where we explore the science, the stories and the strategies of getting out of your comfort zone, navigating challenge and doing the hard things that make life worth living. I'm your host Chris Desmond. Uncomfortable is OK is brought to you by Health Mentors. Health Mentors is a performance wellbeing company that helps change makers dial in their health and improve their performance in the middle of a chaotic world. We offer one-on-one health mentoring services as well as a range of workshops and workplace solutions all the way up to supporting organizations with their well-being strategy. You can find out more at healthmentors.nz or get in contact with Chris at healthmentors.nz welcome to the uncomfortable is okay podcast today i'm joined by dr chris lee who is a behavioral behavioral science expert and an author of some great books reset make the most of your stress intelligence a new psychology of thinking and her latest book worth the risk how to microdose bravery to grow resilience connect more and offer yourself to the world chris welcome to the podcast
1: Chris thank you for having me it's wonderful to be here
0: I'm very excited about today I came across your book a couple of months back with the risk and have been listening to it on Audible and when when you started it when it started out it, it almost felt like you were talking kind of directly to me or at least directly to kind of my my evolution as I've been going on for the last kind of fifteen, ten 10 or 15 years so thank you for putting it out into the world.
1: It's my sincere pleasure. I know a lot of us are grappling with many things right now. So it's a joy to be able to, you know, contribute something, I think a little different than a lot of the books on the market right now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I want to wind, wind the clock back. And I want to hear a little bit more about you though. Where were you born? Where did you grow up?
1: So I grew up in a town called Lakeville. It and- Meth in southeastern Massachusetts in the United States, south of Boston. And it was a very nurturing environment, but also there wasn't necessarily a lack of diverse thoughts or diversity in general. It was kind of like a very small, insular town. And from there, I became the first in my family to have the opportunity to attend university. And that was such a pivotal moment in my life to have the opportunity to study and you know, just learning so much about myself and the world and, you know, that really set my course for my future studies and the things I became interested in as I went along.
0: What did you study at university to start off with?
1: Well, I started off, like I think most university students, interested and curious about a lot of things. And I studied speech-language pathology, so communication sciences and disorders. And then I double majored in early childhood ed with a minor in psychology. So I was always really interested in the mind and, you know, how it works and, and why humans behave in particular ways and, you know, how to help. And then as I went through that experience, I also began working and had a lot of exposure to, you know, just seeing people who have gone through extraordinary trauma be able to heal and, you know, make progress even through, you know, things that seemed unspeakable and really quite difficult. Um, And so, you know, I thought I want to make my life's work to become a therapist. And I did. I went on to get my master's and have my clinical training. And then I did that work for many, many years, which was very gratifying. And then from there, you know, I started to get very curious about the new discoveries within modern brain science and wanted to kind of extend my learning and then pursued a doctorate. And so with that, it's really opened up a lot of pathways to researching human resilience. And, you know, really looking at the way that organizations and individuals and and families function and how sometimes they don't function well, you know, and how we can, you know, apply these discoveries of today in order to stay and do well. In a context of today, you know, it's a very, as we know, a hyper-competitive global market. It's a time of great travesty and trauma for many. It's a time of reckoning, you know, really being able to think strategically about how we can leverage these modern resources, but also solve the big issues of today. And, you know, so all this, you know, it seems sometimes I think like a non-linear trajectory, but it really all fed into, you know, my curiosity and desire to serve the human condition, you know, to figure out what it is that can help people do well and increase their resilience, even during difficult circumstances.
0: Mm. I've been thinking a lot about motivation and, and option taking recently. And so I'm interested to hear from you, what excites you about doing that? What excites you about learning that stuff?
1: I feel like this is an interesting question because I think I always want to like preface by saying, I wish I did, there wasn't a need for my work, but I think right now, I think there, it's very par- paradoxical as we look at our experiences as humans. So oftentimes I feel pardoned and at, at looking at, you know, the displays of courage and resilience everywhere we turn. And then simultaneously, I oftentimes feel heartbroken you know, at the way in which people are suffering at the magnitude of level that's being reported, you know, the level of acuity in this global mental health crisis, for example, is really jarring, you know, to consider. So I feel like a motivating force is recognizing how well treatment works, how well a lens of prevention and integration, identification And and an appropriate treatment can really save a life. You know, it can really help people go from a situation of feeling depleted and overwhelmed and ridden with anxiety, and you know, maybe depressed depression. And how you know intervention can really change the course of our lives. And I think for myself, not only as a scholar and as a clinician, but also as a person with a lived experience of anxiety and depression. I know firsthand the perils of those conditions and, you know, how erosive they can be, how difficult it can be to really see beyond it and think that there is actual hope. So I think my own lived experience is a major motivating force, as well as, you know, the stories I hold, you know, through the thousands of people that I've had, the the great privilege of serving in my therapy room. You know, I think of my students. That I serve in my classroom now, and those I've work with across the world to see yes, they have, are dealing with, you know, again, heartache and, and, and real challenges, but yet, um, through very specific ways of engaging in life, we can come to terms with things and round that corner towards healing. So all of that is a motivating force. you know, see this great level of suffering. And then also these opportunities of today to heal and to grow. And I think when we do that, moreover, it allows us not only, you know, I think the self health movement is interesting and and fraught in a lot of ways. But I think when we do set out on a course of healing and when we can access that, that then allows us to contribute more robustly within the world. And so it's not just for the sake of self. And kind of like self-actualization or growth or like, then I can get back on the li- ladder and start climbing more vigorously again. It's more about then how do we take our strength and our talent and our discoveries and then apply that to contribute positively within the world. So there's a lot that motivates me. It's not all sunshine and rainbows and butterflies <laughs> for sure. But I think it really is very compelling. It's a compelling reason you know to try to take what i've learned and unlearn and relearn the hard way and hopefully encourage others to do the same in their own unique healing process
0: thank you for sharing that Mm-hmm. And the more that I think about motivation, the more that I understand it. it's, it's made up of a whole lot of different micro motivations, as opposed to just one larger motivation, which you articulate really, really well, kind of all of the different facets that intertwine with your motivations there. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm. It's been uh, here in New Zealand recently. It's been Mental Health Awareness Week, and it's been World Mental Health Day. And I think yeah. Google just told me that it was uh, Mental Health Awareness Month at the moment yeah. as well. And we've been hearing a lot about the concept of resilience. Resilience, I think, as a as a concept, has kind of really come to the fore in the last couple of years. And I've seen multiple definitions of it, some that I I quite like and a lot that I don't really agree with. And I'm wondering how you think about resilience and how you define it.
1: I'm so with you, Chris. I think that you can't enter a parenting or a business or an education conversation without the word resilience coming up. And as you said, we've had this commemoration World Mental Health Awareness Day, and all these efforts to really raise important attention. I do worry that oftentimes resilience is defined in very narrow ways or ways in which we used to define it, but now we know better. So I'd like to start with maybe like a couple of myths about resilience and then offer you a definition that. I've kind of synthesized through my research and, you know, just really looking at this very closely. I think a myth of resilience is that we're either born resilient or we're not, or that resilience is about being very gritty and tough and stoic and never letting letting anyone see us sweat unless it's to show off our hot yoga class, right? Or, you know, like it's all this idea of like just toughing it out and being strong. And oftentimes people, when I ask how they define it, They talk about the bouncing, bouncing back. (laughs) And, you know, we're not rubber ball. We're not rubber balls. And so I, I think that the other way that it's sometimes erroneously defined is that when we talk about like individual examples, like, oh, look at them. They have this glorious, you know, comeback from this awful setback. And we look at it in very singular terms. And I see that as very myopic and limiting because we're not looking outwards at why we need to be resilient in the first place and the conditions of modern life, which by the way, you know, you mentioned World Mental Health Awareness Day, the World Health Organization reclassified burnout in 2019, pre-pandemic. And they used to call it a condition of like health. It was it was priorly, you know, classified in that regard. And now and I think I just made up a word priorly. And then prior, it was—is that a word?
0: It's a good know. one. I, I, I use it a word think all could now. I
1: it one today. You all heard it here first. Priorly, I think I don't know. So the jury's out for me. But you know, the point is to get back to the point is that it then got recategorized. Burnout was reclassified as the condition of modern life and of today's workplace. And I think that should really set off the alarm bell for us to realize that it's the conditions and the context of today. And that could be systemic isms and issues, injustices, oppression, violence, particularly towards BIPOC communities or LGBTQ. But we have to look at resilience in context is what I'm saying. And so many times we just look at it on like that very simplistic individual level. So what I've learned about resilience through my work and, and through my own personal discovery is that resilience isn't a tree. Or, you know, like a a matter of like sheer will or a moral, like, you know, accolade. Resilience is a process of adaptation through adversity. And it's one that we are all wired for, you know, to endeavor this process through specific habits, mindset, and behavior, right? So it's not flip a switch. It's not one, two, three, pop psychology. It's not like toxic positivity, I'm fine and I'm stoic or that. It's it's getting, you know, to your whole premise of your podcast, it's getting comfortable with the uncomfortable and expecting that in life that disorienting moments are always occurring. There's always chaos abounding every which way we turn. And yet we can really work to identify protective factors within our life. That's a very like classic keyword in resilience, literature, protective factors. And all that means is the presence of people and activities and resources within our locus of control, within our spheres that we can reach into and draw upon as you know sources of strength and fortitude that nourish us. And by the way, as you know, you know, working to become more brave is, you know, and microdosing bravery is one way that I've recently written about to help us think about what do I actually do to build it? If you're saying the process, now what? So that's, those are some ways I've started to define resilience through this work of looking at, you know, empirical studies and endeavoring my own research and you know, calling into question the ways that it it sometimes is narrowly defined or historically defined and coming up with a new way of seeing ourselves and one another as capable of resilience. Even I was saying like, is resilience impossible? Is it even possible? Is it a thing? Is it within reach during impossible times? And yet research overwhelmingly affirms that it it indeed is, but it's not path. Like we can't just be like, okay, tomorrow I'll be resilient. And then, you know, it happens. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's actually work.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. It was, it's enlightening to kind of hear the the depth of like the depth of work that you've done around that as well. And yeah, really refreshing to kind of hear that it is an adaptive process and it's a skill that we, we build over time. And I think you, you mentioned in there that we, our bodies change Mm -hmm. as we start to adapt and like for me, from like a, a scientific perspective, I'm quite interested in like, how does our body change as we do that? So as you start to, as you start to adapt through difficult times, like what, what is happening in the body?
1: Well, you know, we're actually able to create a new repertoire of experiences for ourselves. So a lot of times I think we have an aversion to stress and we worry about all the fear that we're marinating in constantly. We worry about everything that we're contending with in today's times. But modern brain science shows us that we are capable of enduring the stress. However, it's very important that we take the the reprieves that we toggle away from the stress and create what we're calling now positive emotion repertoires, which allow us then to, you know, be mindful, be present in a moment, to savor a moment that's positive, you know, like to cultivate awe, for example, or gratitude in our experiences. And they might be very simple, like to color it in. I remember in the onset of the pandemic, you know, all of us just remembering that time of like complete distress and uncertainty and fear and not having access to so many of the protective factors that we typically would have. Right. And like we're told to physically distance and we're told, you know, just, you know, not to resume anything that typically would bring meaning to our lives. And I remember like in my own writing practice, being sure to document like the smallest of things that I felt grateful for in a day. So it could have been like a laugh I shared with a family member or like just a a good writing process or like that, you know, we had food to eat, like just the simplest thing as a practice to, you know, really like nourish myself through those moments. And I think so much again of the research is showing that it's not the squashing of stress or the avoidance of it altogether because none of us can it. you know, it's just part of our experiences as humans. But what we can do is create these rituals in our lives, these micro moments, these, these activities, these skills, these habits that we form that allow us to, again, just have moments of, of elation or joy or quiet or stillness even. Right. And we know that that can really elevate us and help keep us going through these difficult moments, even when we don't feel quite resilient at all. Our brains are wired for that adaptation. Much attention has been given, for example, to brain plasticity. And then, you know, the other beautiful discovery is through a a wonderful colleague, Lisa Feldman Barrett at Northeastern University. And in, in Worth the Risk, I speak to her work and I talk, one of the chapters is called You Are Not Your Automation. And in that, the big discovery is that our brains are predictive machines, that they are pattern recognizers. So, therefore, if our body budget is very low, like, so we're not sleeping proper, we're not eating well, we're not hydrated, we are unexercised, um, and then something difficult wallops us, it's easy for the brain to kind of predict how it should feel in that moment and to fall to, a difficult trajectory. And this new discovery has really been, you know, important because it causes us and calls us to attention around making sure we're investing in our body budget, making sure that we aren't just flying by the seat of our emotional pants, that we actually can take agency and we can focus on what is within our locus of control and utilize that as a leverage in order to, again, stave off, all these things that are constantly, you know, slamming up against us in our race and that are very difficult.
0: So many potential rabbit holes to go down with that, but I'm going to restrain myself and I'm <laughs> going to loop around to your, to your book. And I was thinking of titling this episode "Worth the risk, but maybe it's don't fly by the seat of your emotional pants. <laughs> I quite like that one Chris. Before we get into worth the risk, there are some, there are some interesting themes that that pop up through the book. And I'm just wondering, did you party quite hard at university with some of the, the metaphors yep. that you use in there? Or did you. Observe Everybody you?
1: always asked party. me, everyone always asked me about the standing reference. And, and I think it's so funny because the, to give you like a snapshot, I was always a very anxious person very hyperactive. You may know I perform comedy. So I've always had this like really strange, irreverent sense of humor. And I used to like get in trouble for being too loud. And one time they even said, we think you need to go to drug and alcohol counseling. <laughs> like, and I said, I don't, I'm sober. I'm stone cold sober. This is just like me being like a little bit unruly. So no, I wasn't like, I've never, I feel like maybe I've gone through like one stage when I was very clinically depressed, where I was self-medicating. But beyond that, I have found that like those things just don't work with my anxious and depressed brain. And so I'm very precise about like the things that I do to stay well. And in the past, even like I just, it would, it would just be such a slippery slope if I tried self-medicating. So no, I was just strange. <laughs> I just had like, I had a lot of energy and I, I yeah.
0: No, it's <laughs> nice, nice. I was, as I was listening, I was like, oh, I wonder, I wonder kind of where, where all those references came from, but I, I want to talk about kickstanding standing bravery and how you, how you defined it in the book was, was really, really cool. And it's contrast to how we should be brave. So can you tell us a little bit about kind of the, how you think about bravery and how you think about how people kind of often try and express but bravery by kegstanding bravery?
1: Yeah, and maybe I think the other way to answer your question is that I watch a lot of movies, like movies of college life, right, and kind of like that stereotypical situation. So for anyone listening that doesn't know what a kegstand is, it's sort of this, you know, way to funnel – Alcohol into your body at like breakneck speed, and it's sort of this thing that is oftentimes like a peer pressure, like do it, yeah, you're awesome. if you do this thing, you're tough and and you're cool and I felt like there was this thing in society around risk taking and resilience and grit in I think just everyday circles where people think like you've got to have this like big act in order to show off your bravery. And I think in general with, you know, just the proliferation of social media, for example, there's so much curation of like ourselves and how great we are. There's sort of this like grandiosity. And we see it, obviously, like I think a lot of people would stereotype America like with these kinds of sentiments. And we've seen it in our sociopolitical world, unfortunately. But I think it's also very prevalent in business and leadership circles. Like you know, never, you know, letting on and acting like you have all the answers and then you're right or you want people to kind of like hold you with a certain posture. And I use the keg standing metaphor to say that's not what life is about. Like life isn't about showing off and like, you know, just valiant, big, grandiose acts. And really courage is about small sex or small Like bit by bit, learning what's important to us and how we want to show up in the world and then taking those small acts a little bit at a time and digesting them. Because I think for any of us in this life, whether or not we technically have clinically significant anxiety or we're just really like swimming in a lot of trepidation these days, those kinds of use that keg standing method It can just get in the way of us doing anything. We can feel then paralytic and like, well, I'm not like that. And I think a a classic example is someone who feels like they're introverted. And then they're like, I don't know if I can lead proper. I'm not like that kind of persona of the extrovert. And I love that that came into conversation over the last few years to say, it's not this like whole, you know, again, Effervescence or this like boldness that we see on the outside, sometimes that's just a compensation. And underneath it, people can feel insecure. So sometimes it's just an act. I really wanted people as they read through this and they grapple with their own lives and their own variables to see that courage is oftentimes very small acts. It's not that big thing in public that everyone sees and cheers us on with. Sometimes it's also that behind the scenes, tough work, again, for people with lived experience in mental health, just to face the day, just to get out of bed is an act of courage and that should be celebrated. So I think that we all need to just push back at these ideals, these so-called ideals that really are very fraught and they don't really give a picture of ways that we could actually build resilience and courage in today's world.
0: Yeah, I think it's when I, when I initially emailed you, I I brought up that metaphor and I'm, I'm someone who has done a few kickstands in their time. And I think they're not particularly enjoyable, Uh they're not, not fun, but they're not, they're not lots of fun. Uh, Uh And I think part of it is to, to feed the ego. with that as well is that hey if i if i do this then that will increase my status and as you as you mentioned it's it's a metaphor that goes across a whole lot of other areas as well leadership business relationships and trying to i think trying to increase our status from that ego perspective is as you said it's it's fraught with it's fraught with fraught with challenge because it's not, we're not doing something because we particularly want to do it, or we're not doing something because it's particularly meaningful for us. It's purely to kind of feed our ego or, or stoke our ego. And like we if we're pouring energy into that, then we can't pour energy into, we have less energy or less body budget. To pour into things that we value and things that are meaningful and things that are going to improve our lives in ways that keg standing probably won't.
1: Indeed, I love how you put that, and I love how you use the word meaningful. I think that's a key, a key word here. You know, for all of us to think like right, what brings meaning, meaning and sustenance. You know, and I think another key word is sustainability. Right. So how do we want to, you know, again, make the kinds of choices that keep us staying and doing well and that align with our value set as people, too? So it's less about like the external validation that we may receive from kind of like, you know, showing ourselves in a particular way, but it's more the internal alignment to what we really care about in life. And that we're acting on that. And like you said, we're investing in that instead of wasting and expending energy, you know. Like, and I think a lot of people will say, well, now that social media is here, now obviously like social comparison has gone way off. The research is clearly showing that. But I think that the idea of like, what will the neighbors think isn't new. And I think particularly in the mental health stigma Eradication conversation. Like, I think that is a big point because I think for anyone who had lived experiences through those generations of the past, it was like, shh, don't tell. You're going to embarrass the family. This is a secret. You should be ashamed of it. You don't want to, like, you know, humiliate the family name. You don't want it. And so I think that piece is also, you know, something to watch out for. Like, to realize, yes, it has amplified in today's times, but we've always operated from that shame-based stigma kind of narrative and paradigm. And I think now as the world has just opened up in terms of our ability to correspond and to share our stories and our honest, candid experiences, I think that allows us to see ourselves in one another, you know, to honor our interconnectedness And kind of move away from like that 1950s hangover of like stigmatized mental health condition to human condition. This is our shared humanity, all the perils of life, like all the duality of our narratives and like the complexity of our stories. And it's okay not to be okay. But we also don't have to stay like hiding out in the shadows around that. We can reach for health and and tap into that. So I think that piece is so important because I do think. We have been governed by this whole idea of like not bringing embarrassment to ourselves. And yet everybody is experiencing the same things in one form or another. Fears, the anxieties, the challenges. So I think, you know, candor connection and coming forth with that can really be quite healing and monumental for all of us.
0: Yeah, and I'm seeing I'm seeing that starting to happen in in a few pockets, which is absolutely fantastic. And I obviously have have a reasonable amount of conversations with guys. I guess you, you probably wouldn't call them young guys anymore, but guys in their sort of thirties and forties. I turn thirty nine next week actually, and I still feel reasonably young, other than the lack of sleep. But you look at us from the outside. And you see, probably see quite typical Kiwi guys that seem reasonably laid back, but having conversations with them saying, actually, hey, I I experience anxiety or I find this stuff really, really challenging and I worry about it a lot. And what most people who look at us don't see is that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I think as as people we have well people that have been through this and have learned some skills and who have have the i guess the psychological safety
1: Mm -hmm. at
0: Mm -hmm. the moment i think we have a responsibility to start to talk about it and say Mm -hmm. hey here i am i'm an example of someone who has found it challenging Mm -hmm. and but there are some things that I, that I did. I, I asked for help. I learned some new skills and sometimes I still feel really, really anxious, but mm-hmm. that's normal. I'm a human that people have been feeling that way for a long, long time. And people are probably going to continue to feel that way for a long, long time, but you're not alone with this. And there are some mm-hmm. things that you can do that will help.
1: Yes. I love how you how you you know are embodying this in your own friend group and I think that I find it interesting because sometimes when we hear the word peer support you know we think of like adolescence like how important peers are in those early stages of our lives but I always emphasize that peer support is essential across the lifespan so like you know if you're a parent for example just having other parents who are going through those same things there can be like a lot of comfort and ability to debrief in a unique way there. And I love too, I think, you know, you're illustrating like even gendered norms. It can be according to gender or culture. Like sometimes it can feel unsafe or go against the ways in which we've been indoctrinated to behave, you know, to express particular emotions or circumstances. So I think you're right. If we in our own lives have gone through things and we have that measure of empathy and perspective, And then we can use that as a catalyst to share of ourselves in trusted spaces where it's safe to do that. I think that that can serve as a form of liberation for ourselves and one another, because there's so much power in, again, just being able to share of ourselves in those ways and know that like it's not our fault. It's not something to hide. Just like if you broke your leg, you wouldn't be like, I'm embarrassed. And a like blanket
0: over it here, so no one sees it. <laughs>
1: right, and it's like, well, like that's human, and you know, I'm thinking about. I was in New York City, and I was walking behind a couple, and and again, this is like a, a an example of my my poor sense of humor, but like they, she fell down, and then he fell down. Like she, it was like a bowling pin thing. Like she fell, he fell, and then like you're like. <gasps> And then you know you're thinking, are they like, are they all right? And you're kind of like, you just like, it's the whole shock thing. But then the thing that kind of amused me is they didn't check to see if they were hurt first. They checked first to see who saw them fall because they were embarrassed. <laughs> like they kind of have like a major, you know, I'm thinking like this is the class, like I laughed probably not at that. I mean, like, I made sure they were okay first, obviously. But it was just like the classic metaphor for how we all are. Like, is anyone looking? Did anyone see me sweating? Did they see me cry? You know, and it's just kind of like the classic human instinct to, to sometimes wear. So I think ultimately we just have to recognize it doesn't mean we have to get on a podium and keg stand and tell our whole mental health play, play by play to the world. Maybe a microdosing of bravery would be finding that one person that you know you can let your hair down with and you know you're safe with and you can unpack it. And, the, and then you start there, right? like. In my own mental health story, no, I always say too, watch out for the people who look okay because that's another myth of mental health that it's obvious. And I always say the people who look the best, I worry the most about, I advocate for a universal precautions approach to mental health. Never assume, whether it's someone that has a lot of money or seeing success or they're smiling a lot, never assume what's going on in the backstory of their lives. And for me, It was a professor in college who like saw beyond the facade. I worked four jobs. I had lots of friends. I was always making jokes. And yet she asked me if I was all right. And then I was very embarrassed. I was mortified. But then that gave me a pause and made me realize I could then tell my mom. And then my mom encouraged me to go to therapy. And that really set the course for my healing and recovery process. And also set the course for my life's work. And so I think for anyone out there, you might say, oh, this they they seem fine. Their Facebook and their social media look like everyone's one big happy family and like everything's great. And I think we just have to call that into question and recognize that all of our forward presentations are unlikely to really represent the backstories of our lives. Mm -hmm. And we just have to realize that we're not the only one and we can't fall for that big lie. The anxiety and depression feed us all the time. You know, hi, don't tell, like it's too big of a risk. And I think ultimately that's one of the biggest risks worth taking is finding the safety of telling the truth of our experiences because in uh, it allows us then to look at our strength, look at opportunities to build our resilience, look at what's broken and What's not working well at the same time and work at that all together, building on our strength and addressing areas where we're really struggling.
0: Mm. Yeah. And you, you, you frame up that, I guess, kind of avoidance of struggle in the book as a what if life. Is yeah. when you when you when you don't step towards step towards that discomfort bravely, and I, I really like the the contrast that you make. You can you go from a what if life to a what is life. Yeah. So how do we how do we shift from that what if life where we're where we're avoiding discomfort through to a a what is life?
1: Well, I think anyone that has thought about mindfulness or studied it or learned about it knows this is kind of like the embodiment of it. And so living a what-if life is a life of stewing around what's happened in the past or what's to come and not being able to be present in the moment. Like, what if the pandemic hadn't happened? And what if my sister was talking to me? Or like, what if I didn't have this health issue? And it's just living in a state of constantly trying to barter with life. A what is perspective is radical acceptance. It's focusing on what is true at a particular moment. And it could be very dark and heavy and trying to come to some kind of acceptance around that you can't bargain your way out of it quickly, if at all. And then also appreciating what is. like The the simultaneous like, joy and heartache are always happening in our lives all at once. And the what is is, what is it that I can do each day to face the day and the moment in time? And what do I have to leverage? Who do I have to leverage? How can I show up, you know, and, and find ways to maneuver even though it's hard? And I think for any of us, just knowing like those two framings and catching ourselves in the act when we're like operating, let's say we're what a thing all the time. And one thing, by the way, can also be like, what we call shoulding and musting. So like, Oh, I should do this or I should do that. Or like, and it's just that whole like treadmill we get on versus like, no, like I, I actually like, I'm actually like, I have my, my writing pad right here and I make like really inhumane lists sometimes for myself. Like it's really like terrible self-sabotage, like my list. And I'm like, why do I pack so much in and why do I try to take on so much? And why am I hard on myself? So I think just even that, like being more reasonable with ourselves, practicing self-compassion, like being more humane in what we set out to do. And, and I think those pieces too can help us rather than like just being on a scramble to like fix everything and like do everything. Yep. Sometimes we have to stop and pause and like appreciate what is and then move, move accordingly.
0: Yeah. And then you start being hard on yourself for being too hard on yourself. And you're like, oh, I better put self-compassion on my to-do list as well. <laughs> Chris, when we're when we're thinking about microdosing bravery and we're we're moving from keg standing bravery that's, got, I guess, kind of ego driven, status driven, how do we know what we sh- Sorry to use this word, how do we know what we should be microdosing towards? Like what, how do we know the direction that we should be deploying this bravery in?
1: Well, I think that can be enacted when we get very clear about our values. You know, I've talked about the what is versus the what if, and I think recognizing what's within our locus of control is a, is a foundational and pivotal piece for this. But I would also add to that, that knowing our value set. So for example... If you know social change is really important to you, and yet there's no time, you're not allocating time in your life to focus your energy and effort towards that, you're going to feel a sense of, you know, cognitive dissonance. You know, you're going to feel like a sense of disassociation from what really matters to you. Or let's say, for example, for me, when I look at my values, creativity is very important to me. And if I'm just doing rote work or the same things and I'm not introducing novelty and variety in my life or, you know, creating in some form or fashion, I know that I end up feeling a sense of disconnected and and disenfranchisement from my life. And so I think that it starts with knowing what matters to us. You know, in the last chapter, Worth the Risk, I talk about, you know, Paulo Coelho style, you know, finding our personal legend. And really knowing like what those key things are that matter to us. I think that then becomes the guide for us and the lens in which we see the things we're choosing to devote our energy, our attention toward, right? And so I think that's the start. And so like, let's say, for example, you're like, you know what? I, I'm very conflict averse. I hate controversy. I hate like getting into the weeds with people. I don't want to start a fight. But there's things that like really rub against you and you know that you don't want to be a passive bystander to, and you know it's going to really create friction or long-term tension in a relationship, at work, at home, right? So microdosing bravery in that situation for you as a person who's like, I don't want to do this, maybe you just stop on a very small level and just say a statement like, It would mean a lot to me if you knew this mattered to me, or like you just initiate like a baby step, like a tiny, you know, a tiny microdose and then get comfortable with that and then see if it builds and open up further conversation to advocate for those things that matter to you. Let's say you want to public, you know, like be a public speaker. Well, like you don't pick a crowd of a thousand, but maybe you write some things up that matter to you and you reverse it in front of a small group or you volunteer at a local nonprofit to share some of your idea, right? And then you and then you build from there. So I think the key thing is just identifying what matters to us and not just like, I feel so bad because I think so many people forego what matters to them because they think they should be doing something else or like there's just so many competing priorities in the day. So I would just say for everyone listening and watching, like, please clarify your values and, and make it a priority. And even if it's like five minutes a day, like For me as a writer, I devote myself to writing every day, but I just do a small amount because I know that's realistic. And I make sure I put that on the calendar, like in my day at a time, like when I'm still like fairly sanish, like I'm not totally exhausted. Right. And I think that is a way I can honor my value set and advance the things that really matter to me in the world. And it's also very therapeutic when we do the activities that put us into psychological flow. And we just feel good when we do that. Like it's such a loving act we can give to ourselves when we honor our value. And I know it's different for everyone. Like if you're a parent or you've got like a C-suite job or you're a caregiver or like There's just a lot going on in your life. You might be dealing with mental health issues and it's just all a lot. Even if it doesn't look like a lot on paper that you're doing, then maybe it's just like a tiny two minute thing you give yourself each day where you like don't beat yourself up and you like are kind for two hot minutes for yourself, you know? So I think just any of us identifying those spaces that are possible and then ritualizing them And in that, then we do build momentum towards our resilience over time, strategically.
0: Yeah, and I think there's also an element of testing that out as well, is that if you are uncertain of your values, you don't need to completely 100 define them in a in a correct way before you start taking action on it you could think oh this is probably what i'm about this is probably what i'm into i'm gonna test it out and try it on for size and see how i go and then if it's actually not something that is helpful for you or it's not something that is that does align with your values and you thought oh i thought i was about this but maybe i'm not it, it's just backing you up and and trying a slightly different path as well. And again, I guess with, with that, it's it's potentially easy to beat yourself up because you think you should have it all figured out already. But again, you're human. And I think one of the kind of the, the main kind of themes of being human is being uncertain yeah. as well. And, and, and evolving and adapting as well. So, I mean, even if one thing worked for you 10 years ago, it may not be the same thing that's important to you and, and may not be the same thing that is helpful for you right now.
1: Indeed. I love that. I feel like your next podcast could also be uncertainty is okay, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and I think that, you know, being like increasing our tolerance for risk allows us to be more curious. And really your point is like, life is experimental. Like it's trial and error. And I think a lot of times people are afraid to take risks because they're afraid of failure. They're afraid again of like embarrassment or humiliation or wasted time. But life is so experimental. It's like, we don't, this book I think is really like for anyone that struggles with perfectionism or, you know, I distinguish the difference between healthy achievement versus unhealthy overachievement so it's true like you don't need to go out and like you know take a retreat in the woods for the next three weeks to figure out your values just start like you know kind of pick up on it and then see if you can pick an activity that goes with that so like let's say you have a value of maintaining good health maybe you try to get 15 minutes extra sleep a night if it's possible right right or you value, you know, or like you do something with your nutrition or you value relationships, but you notice like there's not a lot of time to spend time. So you set a date for that next visit with someone and make it like realistic, Like It doesn't have to be a five hour hangout. Maybe it's just a quick hour coffee, but that's better than nothing. So I do worry that sometimes in our more is more world, we think we have to go big or stay home. And as we've talked about today, if we just like, approach the world with more curiosity and like more openness. It allows us to tolerate those risks and those risks can have a major return on investment for us. They can truly pay off.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's starting with what's practical rather than what's optimal. Yeah. Uh, that that is holds a lot of people back. Chris, just mindful of the time. How do you look after your health at the moment?
1: Yes, it's a bit of a circus sometimes, I think, for all of us right now, because I, I would say that I think sometimes the things that work for us pre-pandemic, we've had to kind of like expand our repertoire of coping skills and mechanisms. And so for me, I'm very mindful about lifestyle medicine, sleep, nutrition, hydration, and exercise. And I didn't just like figure all that out in like my 20s in one quick minute. It took, it took decades. It took time to build that repertoire of things I go to. As you know, too, my writing and my performing arts as a comedian, those have been kind of like extra nourishing things and moments of peril. So as I mentioned, like the writing practices that I have, and then, you know, my my relationships are very protective. So the people that I love in my life, spending time with them and being a reverend, laughing, enjoying that time, that all matters a lot to me. So this, there's a lot of things I go to and Some days, some things work better than others. But I think, again, that process of discovery, what can work at a particular moment and giving ourselves permission to create those reprieve moments so that we can maintain our energy. And I will say, like, a lot of people say to me, you must not sleep, you do so much. And I'm like, no, I'm actually like very, I'm not religious as a person, but I'm religious about my sleep. And so, like, there's certain things that I do with great, Intentionality and precision because that allows me to then have the energy I need to do the things that matter to me in this world.
0: Mm, cool. We've talked a reasonable amount about this already, but are there any other strategies that you use to build your cap- capacity to deal with adversity?
1: I think it's like the key thing is finding people like that also maybe have dealt with similar circumstances in their own stories. And I think that like there's safety in numbers. So I think just that piece of relationships are really essential. I think that, you know, efforts can fall flat if we try to do it on our own volition.
0: Yeah. I've recorded over 300 of these podcasts now, and I don't know if anyone has you. mentioned social connection as, as a strategy before I'll have to, I'll have to trawl back through, but that was, that was cool. If they have they haven't for a while, huh. Chris, If people want to check you out, if they want to get the book, which I definitely recommend that they should. And I actually just grabbed your other two last night on Kindle. So you'll be getting like 98 cents, I think, from Amazon at some point in the near future. (laughs) from the the back of that, where can they do that? Where's the best place for them to to connect and check the book out?
1: i love for folks to connect. My website is kristenlee.com, K-R-I-S-T-E-N. LBE.com. That's a great place to find me on social media, to check out my TEDx talk and to find the book. And then my social media handle is at the real Dr. Chris. And I'm sure you'll put that in the show notes. I will. Yeah. It's such a delight to connect with you and your audience today.
0: Beautiful. Chris, do you have a challenge to leave us with this week?
1: Yes. I challenge everyone who's listening and watching to identify one small act of microdosing bravery. So I challenge you to tell someone something uncomfortable about yourself, someone that you feel safe with obviously, and just talk to them and ask them for support. I think a lot of us are are willing to give help, but we're afraid to ask for it. So ask for help. Like the other day I asked the person at the grocery store to help me carry my stuff to the car. I've never done that. I was in a rush. I wasn't feeling good. And they were happy to help me. So just ask someone for like some form of help right now, this week. That's my challenge to you.
0: That's a great one. Dr. Chris, thank thank you so much for getting uncomfortable with me today.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Chris.
0: Thank you so much for getting uncomfortable with us today. I always love these conversations. If you want to have a, hear a guest, if you want to have a topic explored, if you want to ask a question, please send an email to chris at healthmentors.nz uh, and we can get onto that for you. If you want to support the show, the best way that you can do that is subscribe on your favourite podcast app and make sure to share it out with some of your mates as well. Thank you to Health Mentors, the sponsor of the show today. If you want to improve your health and your performance in the middle of a chaotic world, make sure to check out healthmentors.nz or send an email to chris at healthmentors.nz for a no obligation chat. Thank you so much to my brother Jeremy Desmond for the amazing theme music to the show. And thank you to you guys for tuning in and listening all the way to the end. We'll see you all again next week.